Thank you, and once again, good morning to students and teachers of the Word of God. This is broadcast number 36 in a series of broadcasts that deal with the uh, great matters of systematic theology, what we call the systematizing or the orderly arrangement of the great doctrines of the Word of God. When we say theology, of course, we're referring to the study of God or knowledge of God, the almost forgotten science of our day and age, where God is examined and scrutinized in the light of his self-revelation. After all, God is not the subject of man endeavors to find out. God is the subject of self-revelation. And without this self-revelation, man is unable to find God. The contemporary scientific bunco, beginning with Kant, Descartes, and Spinoza, and brought up through the National Education Association and to the state universities, is the nonsense that man can find out all he needs to know about God by examining nature apart from special revelation. This, of course, was the position taken by the English deists back in the 1700s and 1800s and early 1900s. <clears throat> and this uh, private interpretation is now taught as religious dogma in the schools. Uh, the contemporary situation the state universities is, as a whole, either the religious dogma of atheism is taught or the religious dogma of deism is taught. And at the same time, the schools are very careful to tell you that church should be separated from state and no religion should be taught in the schools. We know what to think of this type of hypocrisy. There are courses in schools up in the Northeast now dealing with Satanism and witchcraft. Satanism and witchcraft are a religion. And it's a very strange thing how Satanism and witchcraft and evolution and deism and atheism can be taught in the college and high school system as religions, but Bible-believing premillennialism cannot be taught. It's a wild scene, isn't it? <clears throat> so when we say theology being properly the study of God, yet theology itself is broken down into a number of minor headings or classifications. For example, the study of God the Father is usually referred to as theology, the study of God the Son as Christology, the, the lessons about God the Holy Spirit or doctrine of the Holy Spirit are referred to as pneumatology, the material that deals with man and the creation is referred to as anthropology, and material about angels and Satan is usually referred to as angelology and demonology. We have two more ologies to consider, soteriology uh, and homotiology, which deal with the study of salvation and sin. And then the last subject, quite naturally, is eschatology. Now, these jaw-breaking words are nothing but little old Greek words with a low gia stuck on the end of them to make you think something's big going on. What we're actually studying here is the doctrines of Christology, the great Bible doctrines, to deal with the person, work, and nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. The central theme of the Bible, uh, the chief theme of heaven, and the subject that is most uh, dearly beloved by God the Father, the subject nearest to his heart. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, in previous lessons, we've gone into great detail discussing the, discussing the, the theology of the Trinity, the person and nature of Jesus Christ, the dual natures of Jesus Christ, and we spent considerable time on the character of Christ, the commandments of Christ, the sinlessness of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the relationship of the Son to the Father. In our last two lessons, we've been talking about the uh, death of Christ on the cross, the resurrection of Christ, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Our lesson today logically follows this series of lessons with work on the intercessory ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Having learned from the Bible that he's gone back to glory, back to the third heaven, beyond Alpha Draconis, and where the telescopes and scientists can't possibly reach him, 
where he dwells in eternity in the high and holy place with him that is of a humble heart and a contrite spirit, we now come to the intercessory work of Christ. This is a subject under Christology which deals with Christ's work as priest and his work in the priesthood. Now, discerning students of the Bible have learned to rightly divide the word of truth, and they clearly distinguish the three offices of the Lord Jesus Christ, which may be called prophet, priest, and king. In studying the Old Testament, one is struck by the fact that there is only one man in the Old Testament that holds all of these positions. We have Abraham, who is a prophet, and as an interceder for his own family, he's a priest, but not a king. We have Moses, and Moses' position is most unique in that he's uh, a prophet, and he's a king. He's called a king in Jeshurun, but the priesthood is given to Aaron. We have the case of Saul, a prophet who becomes king and tries to uh, intervene or thrust himself into the priesthood and is soundly rebuked by Samuel and eventually loses the crown because of his intrusion into the priest's office. We also have the famous case in the book of Chronicles where Uzziah the king goes into the temple off of sacrifice and is withstood and rebuked by the priests and becomes a leper. And leprosy rises up in his forehead while he's standing there. There is one man in the Old Testament, however, who fulfills all three offices as a type of Christ. And, of course, you guess who this would be. This would be David. David is not only king over Israel and is not only a prophet, and is called that by the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. But David is the only man in the Bible that has shown the place where the temple is to be built and where the sacrifices are to be offered on Mount Moriah on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. You'll find this material at the end of First Chronicles and at the end of First Samuel. In these passages, we learn that David is a prophet, priest, and king. Now, in studying our life and work and ministry of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we have covered the material that deals with his life as a prophet. He was a prophet like unto Moses, according to Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. And when he shows up in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, they say, Who is this? And they say, It is Jesus, the prophet of Galilee, the prophet of Nazareth. A big argument comes up in the Sanhedrin, and they say, Search the Scriptures, for out of Galilee arises no prophet, that even his enemies knew that he was a prophet of God. The woman at the well of Samaria said in John chapter 4, I perceive that thou art a prophet. So when the Lord Jesus Christ was on this earth, he came the first time as a suffering prophet, a suffering Messiah, and he said that he was like those that the scribes and Pharisees of Jerusalem cast out. And he said, How often you cast out and killed the prophets and slew those that were sent to you. The Lord Jesus Christ, in his first aspect of his life, was a prophet on this earth. We now come to his second office in his ministry on this earth, and this ministry is carried on in heaven after his ascension. <clears throat> this ministry is the intercessory work of Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father as a high priest. So this brings us to our lesson today, the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is Christ idle today? No, he's not. He's spending his time preparing mansions for the redeemed. He's spending his time in intercession. And he's a mediator who intercedes uh, between us and God on behalf of sinners. In John 14, verse 2, Christ said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. New Jerusalem is a prepared place for a prepared people 
with reserved motel rooms, accommodations only reserved ahead of time. <clears throat> and Simon Peter says that it's inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, which is reserved for you in heaven, who are kept by faith of the power of God unto salvation. So the Lord Jesus Christ is preparing a place for the redeemed in glory. In addition to this ministry, Jesus is actively engaged in the ministry of intercession. In Hebrews 7.25 we read, See, he ever liveth to make intercession for them that come unto God by him. And in Hebrews 9.24 we read, For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Of these matters in regard to the Christian, we read in Romans chapter 8, The Holy Spirit maketh intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. When you hear a man uttering something that's supposedly an ecstatic uttering of the Holy Spirit, the man is a liar. The groanings of the Holy Spirit cannot be uttered. And when you find a man pretending today would talk with the tongues of angels in some heavenly tongue, you're also dealing with a reprobate, because when Paul was caught up to the third heaven, the words he heard, he said, it was unlawful to utter. So the Lord Jesus Christ today is up in glory interceding for the saints. He has a priest, he is a mediator, who intercedes with a just God on behalf of guilty sinners. We read there is one mediator, not a mediatrix. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Male chauvinism or not, that's the tough luck, ladies. Read them and weep. God the Father is male, God the Son is male, God the Holy Spirit is male, the man is male, and every woman I'm talking to has a male name. Madeline Murray O'Hare has her husband's name. There's no woman I'm talking to who has a name of her own. Your name is your father's name or your husband's name. And how many women live and so forth and so on get through, the horrible fact will remain that since the first woman had no name, the last one won't have one either. You have your daddy's name or your husband's name. Adam called her Eve. The Lord didn't call her anything. He called her Mrs. Adam. All right, then the mediator is one man between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. In Leviticus 4, verse 16, the priest bore a bloody sacrifice or a sin offering to the Lord, and Job's desire in his day was for a mediator, a daysman in his day. Job said in 9.33, Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that he might lay hand upon us both. What Job won, wanted was a day in court and an uh, attorney for the defense, a legal counsel to show up and speak in his behalf to the judge. He wanted the judge to appoint somebody who represented him in court, and then he'd lay hands on the opposing party and him and get him together through the means of a mediator. Now, there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And the reason why God picked this one man is very apparent when we begin to study the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the first place, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only man who could possibly lay hands on you and God at the same time. I grant you Buddha might be able to get a hand on you. I grant that Mary or Joseph might be able to put a hand on you. I grant that John the Baptist, you know, or St. Francis or Kagawa or Gandhi or somebody else might be able to get a hand on you. But, brother, when it comes to laying a hand on God, that's something else. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The ladder that we're going to climb to reach to heaven has to have the bottom or base of the ladder stuck knee-deep down in the miry clay of depraved humanity, stuck down in the miry dust of the humus, 
while the top must reach into the third heaven of the presence of God, where no man could stand even the light of God's countenance. The ideal man who qualifies for this is undoubtedly the Lord Jesus Christ. As God manifests in the flesh, the Son of God, he can qualify for the top of the ladder as the Son of Man, born of a human uh, parent on this earth, a woman, he can substitute and take the place of a human man and take the place of the bottom of the ladder. Hence the Lord Jesus Christ was quite explicit in his statement that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and all of the ways go straight to hell. Now that is the kind of extreme dogmatism and didactic dogmatism that the educated man can't stand because of the depravity of his egomaniac the extreme fanatic thinks that his learning has so broadened his intelligence that he can cancel out Jesus Christ. The characteristic of the highly educated man is simply he thinks because he's seen so many more facts that the facts of Scripture cannot be true. However, his argument is not with me, it's with the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no man, absolute exclusiveness, no man, you or your mother, no man, you or your professor, no man, or the men that taught your professor, no man cometh from the Father but by me. And as we've said before on previous broadcasts, if the Lord Jesus Christ were not a demon-possessed egomaniac, he had to be God, because if he wasn't God manifest in the flesh, he was certainly the most neurotic, psychotic, egotistical nut that ever lived. Imagine a man saying that nobody can get to God except by himself. Imagine that. Just think about that for a minute. That's what he said. Now, we thank God often for Bethlehem and for Calvary, but we must also thank God for his present advocacy at God's right hand on our behalf, his present intercessory work as our mediator. Day by day, our high priest pleads on our behalf before the throne of God. The Bible tells us to come there to boldly to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. All right, now, in the first place, Christ's atoning work was finished on the earth. As the great high priest of our profession, his atoning work was done down here. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. You'll find that in John 19.30. That is, our salvation is perfectly complete. You can add absolutely nothing to it. Add your little old water baptism, your little old works, just because you can't understand Mark 16. Don't have enough sense to explain Acts 2.38. Put your low water and your low sacraments because you're too stupid to explain Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 have nothing to do with the truth. The fact that unlearned and unstable men have confounded Luke, uh, Acts 2.38 with the plan of salvation is nothing but blind leaders leading the blind, and they'll deserve their own damnation and earn it. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, these people, they, tra they are transformed as ministers of righteousness, but their end should be according to their works. They're counting on their works to save them. So their end will be according to their works. And that's why this brand of Bible-professing heretic never has assurance of salvation, because none of them will accept the finished work of Jesus Christ as the seal of their eternal security with God. Every one of them imagines with the depravity of his deluded heart that he himself can do something to add to it. Uh, it is finished. You can do absolutely nothing to add to it. All right, sin was righteously dealt with at the cross. Jesus will never die for sin again. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24 to 28, and Hebrews chapter 10, verse 8 to 10, shows that any man who talks about renewing the sacrifice of Christ 
or repeating the sacrifice of Christ, or continuing the sacrifice of Christ, is greatly in error. Now read carefully Hebrews chapter 10, verse 8 to 12, and notice the one sacrifice is for sins forever, never to be repeated, never to be continued. Uh, the pagans who teach this blasphemous doctrine have taken the verse out of Malachi chapter 1, but applies to the millennium. And when you take catechism courses, you will be taught that the verse in Malachi is a reference to the death of Christ, which, of course, it is not. It is a reference to sacrifices in the millennium, which will take place in Ezekiel 40 to chapter 48. But as I said before, when the blind lead the blind, they all fall into a ditch. The sacrifice of Christ is said to be once and for all, finally and forever, never to be repeated or continued or anything. When people try to reenact Calvary every Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, they are simply blaspheming the Holy Ghost and blaspheming the Scriptures. The uh, 39 articles of the Church of England have a very interesting thing to say in Article 31. They say the doctrine of the, and they name the pagan teaching on this passage about the sacrifice of Christ, is a dangerous delusion and a blasphemous deceit. So any ecumenical movement that leads you back into that dangerous delusion and blasphemous deceit is not to be followed. We have a high priest, and he's not here on this earth, he's up in glory. Christ met the conditions of becoming a high priest. He was taken from among men. And Hebrews 5, 1 says this must be. He was ordained or appointed to the task. Christ Jesus was faithful to him that appointed him in Hebrews 3, 2. He was called of God to the task, according to Hebrews 5, 4. He served in things pertaining to God in Hebrews 2, 17, that he might be a faithful high priest to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. And he offered gifts and sacrifices for sins. In Hebrews 5, 1, the gift and sacrifice which Jesus Christ offered was himself. And this offering was offered once and for all, finally and forever, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 8 to verse 12. And nothing could be more dis God-dishonoring or God-defying than the pagan North African blasphemous heretical teaching that Jesus Christ's sacrifice has to be repeated or continued at intervals to accomplish its work. When Christ said, It is finished, it was finished. And that's the difference between the people who know they're saved and the people who don't know they're saved. The people who don't know they're saved are all people like Cain who are offering up grapes and pretending it's blood. If you remember, before Cain got the mark and went off to hell as a type of the Antichrist, he was offering the fruit of the ground as a sacrifice and pretending that the grapes he offered were real blood. His brother Abel knelt down beside him and offered up the blood of a lamb, real blood from a real lamb. But when Cain tried to transubstantiate his grapes and turn them to blood, he got the shut-off sign from God. He got zapped, as they say in the modern vernacular, because he was a hypocrite. He was trying to pretend something was so that wasn't so. Now Christ was made a priest after the ironic pattern. We read on this earth, Jesus Christ never acted as a priest, because on this earth, of course, he was a prophet. In his first ministry, he came as a prophet. In his present ministry, he acts as high priest. And, of course, in his third ministry, he will come back to this earth to reign as a king. If a man doubted the second coming of Jesus Christ as king, he wouldn't have long to doubt if he simply studied the nature of the office of Christ 
and the nature of the work of Christ. Christ, to fulfill the Scripture, had to be a prophet and a priest and a king. It is perfectly apparent to the most shallow reader that he was a prophet. And it's more than manifest through eight chapters of the book of Hebrews that he is now a priest. What then must follow? Why, by the logical course of action, and by consequence, he has to come as a king. And when he comes, the Holy Spirit is uh, not negligent to tell us that he comes as King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ, like Aaron, offered a sacrifice before the people. Jesus Christ publicly offered himself at Calvary. Like Aaron, he appeared in God's presence for the people. Like Aaron, he came to bless the people. However, Aaron, as a man, died. Jesus, as God, ever liveth to intercede for us. In this respect, Jesus followed another famous priesthood pattern in the Old Testament, the pattern of the Melchizedek priesthood, a priest without end, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, in the blasphemous, obscene, vulgar pagans who started their church in North Africa try to get the Christian to a situation where he has to depend upon some other man for a priest. He is violating the entire New Testament. Every Christian in the New Testament is a priest. Our high priest is not at Guadalajara or Mexico City or San Antonio or Rome or New York or Chicago or St. Louis or Natchez or Baltimore. Our high priest is in glory. And having finished his work, he has sat down on the right hand of God, never to have to fool with it again. And when he mentioned the matter to his disciples, he said, When you do this, and remember the Lord's Supper, you do it simply in remembrance of me, and show my death, not repeat my death. Show my death, not reenact my death. Show my death, not continue my death. Show my death until I come again. Now, please read these passages very carefully in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11. 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, and especially in chapter 10. And you will see immediately that when the Christian sits down to uh, commemorate the memorial of the Lord's Supper, he is taking the fruit of the vine, not fermented liquor, as a remembrance of somebody's death, not a repetition of that death, to show their second coming, not to show their past coming. There's all the difference in the world. And when the Christian sits down to partake of the elements, he sits down at, at a priest to have communion with his high priest. His intercessor and mediator is one, not 300 people, and his intercessor and mediator is up in heaven at the right hand of God, seated up there at the throne as a high priest, not running around down on earth, you know, in some Halloween costume, trying to pretend to be something he's not. Christ offered himself as the sacrifice on Calvary once and for all, finally and forever. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died at Jerusalem without the gate upon that cross of shame, and his sacrifice was voluntary, substitutionary, spotless, with blood, acceptable, and above all, final. When a man tries to reenact the scene, he is usurping the finished work of Jesus Christ that was done 19 centuries before he was born. Now, we're not going to talk this way and then leave you hanging in the, in the air. Please carefully read Hebrews chapter 10, verse 6 to 12. I'll say it again. 
Hebrews chapter 10, verse 6 to 12. Any time in these broadcasts, when you think that we're giving our opinion or giving some denominational or theological interpretation, get out your Bible and read it. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 6 to 12. And before you get upset with me and mad with me and all disturbed and uptight, as the expression goes, or all shook up over something you know nothing about, and before your stupid bigotism gets you in a place where you're running around like an egomaniac with playing with about half your deck, would you please turn to the passage? You people can read. I don't care if you have a Spanish Bible or a German Bible or a French Bible or a Russian Bible or English Bible. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 6 to 12, says that Christ completed, finished, final sacrifice for sins was done once for all, finally, forever, completed, over, and done with, and never to be repeated or continued or reenacted any time, any place, anywhere, by anybody. And if you don't believe it, read it, and if you don't read it, shut your mouth. I mean, who needs your stupidity, brother, in these days? In these days, with all this confusion going around, who needs one more stup stupid man sharing his agnosticism? Read it. You're grown-up people, I guess. I guess you can read, can't you? If you can't, you can get Braille. If you can't get Braille, you can get it on record or tape. Don't, don't snow me, brother. I wasn't born yesterday or the day before. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27 says it doesn't have to be done over. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 8 to 12 says it never will be done over. Christ's sacrifice was voluntary of the free will. That is, he offered to die. Look at Hebrews 10, 1 to 10. It was substitutionary. He died instead of you. Hebrews 7, verse 24 to 28. It was spotless. He was without spot, a perfect sinless lamb, according to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. It was a bloody sacrifice, not an unbloody sacrifice. It was his own blood, divine blood, according to Acts 20, 28. It was an acceptable sacrifice. The Father's justice was satisfied. He accepted the sacrifice exactly as he accepted Abel's sacrifice. Read this, please, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 to 21. And finally, and this is the most important, it was a final sacrifice, Hebrews 7:27, and there is no need for a reenactment of Calvary by anybody, according to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 6 to verse 12. May I repeat, get a Bible and read it. You say, what Bible? Well, that passage is so plain, you can find it in any Bible you pick up. Isn't it strange with all these new Bibles and so-called the common language of the common man and all this gas that's going on about clear languages folks can understand? You have in America over 8 million people that think that Jesus Christ's sacrifice is not enough to save them? Ain't that a flip? What do you suppose these new so-called Bibles are doing to people? Well, bless your soul if they're clear, don't you know about 14 million people would have been converted by now? and quit trying to fool around trying to repeat something that doesn't need to be repeated? Somebody's gears are slipping. Needs a transmission job somewhere, brother. All right, now we've talked here about Christ's work as a high priest, the intercessory work of Christ, and we're not through yet. We've only discussed four uh, branches of his work, and we still have uh, three to go. On our next broadcast, we'll talk about Christ appearing in the presence of God for us, We'll speak about Christ's advocacy on our behalf now, 
And then we'll talk about the most important thing in our next broadcast, Christ's uh, volunteering or desiring to become and offering himself today as your intercessor and Christ's desire to intercede for you as a fallen sinner and take your place before the throne of God. Until then, may the Lord bless you, and good day.